Hello again and welcome to Rasslin' Memories Then and Now on Pioneer 90.1 FM KSRQ. We're available beyond the FM dial at RadioNorthland.org and tune in. That's an app you can pick up for your smartphone. Yes, you can listen to us live at RadioNorthland.org and 90.1 FM, but if you want to listen to past episodes, stick around, go to the website, check out the Rasslin' Memories page. We have over six years of interviews in the seventh season. We're starting to get some really good ones too added to the archive. Go to there today. Go to our Facebook page, uh, Rasslin' Memories Then and Now. We also have a group page within. Join the group page. That one is growing by leaps and bounds. And one of the other guys who I'm uh, proud to call a member of uh, our little group is with us today. I'm flying solo. No Michael McCurdy. He's taking a break. He's on assignment. He'll be back next week. But I've lined up a fine, fine guest. And, you know, professional wrestling in the political world uh, really started to uh, make make inroads once again here this past spring and and recently in the summertime. Uh, Of course, uh, a lot of people in the mainstream have heard about Glenn Jacobs, professional wrestling's cane uh, over in... Knoxville County becoming the mayor-elect over there. Well, you know, it wasn't that long before then, another professional wrestler uh, got into the world of politics, and he found himself elected by the people. He was also a great professional wrestler in his time, but we're going to talk about his political career, uh, getting elected, what it's going to bring for him, how he got into the whole thing altogether, and we're going to tie in some professional wrestling in this uh, interview. It's an honor to welcome the man himself, Mr. White Lightning, Tim Horner. I guess I should say White Lightning Commissioner-elect for Hamblin County, Tim Horner? Well, that would probably be correct at, at this point. Well, absolutely. <laughs> we got to keep it accurate and on the level here, Mr. Uh, Horner. Yeah. Uh, great. It's, it's good to be on, Glenn. Uh, you know, I've, I've, I've kind of dodged uh, a, a lot of interviews over the past um, uh, five or six years after uh, Brad's death. I just kind of lost interest in the and uh, but um, you know, and then got into a little politics here. So you know, it's a it's a change of venue for me. But uh, still, you got to go out and do the same thing. You got to work hard to get results. Oh, absolutely! You got to go out there, especially in the world of politics. You got to go out and you got to shake the hands. You got to press the flesh. You got to get people to know that this is a person, not just uh, some commercials or ad spots being run. You got to let get be out there, be available, and find out the needs and find out uh, just what's going on. You know, put the ear to the ground. Uh, you know, for, especially when you're you're trying to run a successful campaign. Absolutely, and and you know you were, you were mentioned Kane. You know, Kane never ran a TV ad. He went door to door in Knox County. Knox County is a huge, huge county, and so uh, you know nobody gave him a, a shot at when he first announced. But uh, you know, he did. He did what he does best. He promotes himself. He's promoted himself for for years in the, in professional wrestling, as I have, and uh, kind of comes natural to to just promote yourself. So. Mm-hmm. And it's a, I mean, a lot of people that look pro- professional wrestler runs for political office, but but then when you start to think about it, you think about the life of a professional wrestler. You think all the things that go into making uh, yourself uh, making your mark in pro wrestling. It includes uh, being very interactive with the people. It also includes good mic skills, well timed mic skills too. I mean, how many days uh, you, you can you remember of recording interviews? I mean, there's lots of these little things that actually could work for you when it comes to uh, you know getting on the stage, making your speeches, and just getting involved with something in the world of politics. I think wrestling is actually a pretty good avenue, just the way you can interact and, and feel a crowd. Well, absolutely. And, and back in the day, it's not quite like it is now, uh, when you did interviews for, say, your opponent and for the town you're coming to, 
you know, they just said, you know, I, I can recall uh, uh, being in the uh, Georgia Territory when they would come in and they'd say, Horner Armstrong, Greensboro, South Carolina, you got the Midnight Express, 30 seconds. Wouldn't tell you. You got you had to do it off your cuff. And uh, so, you know, that in itself was, was, uh, was a learning experience, you know. So just right off the cuff, you had to do your own interview. You know, today they're, everything's scripted out for you up there, and you say what you want. But there's no emotion in it. That's what kills me when I see these guys doing interviews, and there's no feeling in it. So, yeah, that 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 was a good background for me personally. You know, to get up in front of people mm-hmm. uh, it was no problem. And uh, let's talk about how you 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 got in uh, involved with it, and, and of course leading up to your being elected here uh, for commissioner elect. Uh, who who talked you into it? What was the, what was the point that you you, you figured? Hey, you know, I want to do a little bit more than just be John Q. Citizen, uh, former pro wrestler. I want to I want to do something more for the community, for the for the area, for the county itself. How did you get involved, and and, and who who persuaded you to uh, get on the ballot? Well, actually. Um I had gotten on the ballot in 2002. I, I've been in the bail bonding industry for 20, 23 years. And so I actually ran for sheriff in this county in 2002, and it ended up being a, a three-man race, and uh, we split the vote, and the incumbent stayed in, which is always the fact. We knew that, I guess, after neither one of us would give up, I guess. so. But anyway... Um, Having done that, you know, gave me a, a, an insight to, to to politics a little bit, and being around uh, the jail and doing what I what I do, we have a, we had jail issues as as every county in the United States does with overcrowding. So that's been an issue, and the past um, commission has has kind of kicked it down the road for the past ten or twelve years, and now it's it's, it's become to where the feds are. are could step in at any day and say, look, you know, you're going to have to do this. So um, my constituents in, in my district, which is District 13 in Hamlin County, asked me last year to consider uh, the commissioner who was there, had been in there for 20-something years. And so, you know, it was a, kind of the same old same old thing. And uh, I didn't do it last year because um, I had a daughter playing soccer at ETSU and we were traveling. I didn't think I could give my my best and and not be here that much so but anyway this year came up and uh, they confronted me and i said yes and we did and and they came out uh my my slogan was self-promotion you know i i said put horner in your corner and we ran with it and uh it was a catchy catchy phrase people were shouting at the gas pumps when they'd see me come by and everything so it was pretty good it was it was gratifying and, and they went out and voted and uh here i am yeah and you yeah you're the commissioner-elect and well you know as you were meeting these people what was some of the things that you could feel were, were some of the bigger issues that were in 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 the county uh what are the things that you perspective that you got from from people in the community that that were on their minds what were some of the more, the more hot button or or just things of interest that affected them that they wanted to see maybe change or, or compromise to well, the jail was was the, the number one issue, and overcrowding, which has contributed to the opioid addiction that that is everywhere, and uh, so that was the, the issues. And as far as education and roads, you know, everything was just kind of had been in a lull for the past three or four years. You know, uh, you know, sometimes commissioners, and and not just commissioners, but other people in, in elected uh, offices, you know. 
don't want to raise taxes, don't want to do this. They want everything, but, you know, nothing's free. And the county runs on taxes, and so you have to be able to do that, you know. And it's, it's not popular, but it's the right thing to do. And, and, and my dad always told me if it's the right thing to do and you do it, you know, it'll, it'll work. So with that being said, I actually get sworn in the 30th of this month. So I, I go to work September 1st. So we're excited about it. Oh, I, I could about imagine. But we talked earlier about uh, how pro wrestling, uh, you know, kind of plant, planted the seeds as far as uh, dealing with, with crowds and being so smooth with, 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 with your speeches and the like. But let's take it back. I mean, is it true that it's been almost 40 years since you, you first broke into the world of professional wrestling? I, I, I was looking through notes, and I, I just wanted to make sure to verify it because, man, it just seemed like yesterday you were, you were a young, bright star on the screen in the <laughs> 1980s. But was it true that you started back in 78? Can we clarify that? And, and who, who helped to uh, have a hand in, in getting you into the pro wrestling business and, and, and introducing you to uh, all these people and, and ending up on this trail that took you to so many interesting parts of the country thanks to the territory? Territory days, right? Well, this, this is interesting. When I was a, a, I of course wrestled in high school, played football, ran track, uh, played baseball, did uh, you know anything athletic? I was I was four. I wasn't a big guy. Uh, I wrestled ninety eight my freshman year in high school, and um, my junior year we had wrestling matches that came every every couple of weeks. It was the old southeastern back in the seventies. And uh, they would come across the street from the high school at the Tally Ward. And I remember as a kid playing Little League and and standing on one of the guys, he would get on all fours and I'd get on his back and I'd get to, I'd peek in the window because we didn't have any money to get in. You know, we just wanted to watch the, the matches. And we got run off several times. But anyway, my junior year, I was at the matches. And, and for whatever reason, you know, I got excited. And, and the Mongolian Stomper and Robert Fuller were wrestling. And... For some reason, I thought I was going to help. And the police officer grabbed me by the seat of the pants. I had one leg up on the ring skirt and my hand on the rope. And I, 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 to this day, I, and it was like a blackout. And he jerked me over and he said, what are you doing? And I, I said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, and he said, well, stand right here. Well, Louis Tillet, who was a French-Canadian, French was the booker at the time, and he came over, and he cussed me, and French, and American, and, and whatever, you know, and, and I was crying, I said, oh, he, he said, throw him out, get him out, you know, da da da, da. So uh, the police officer, who happened to be a friend, of, continued to be a friend of mine, and, and actually was in my wedding, but um, he said, he said I got him, he, he, he'll be fine, he'll be fine, and then after the matches, uh, Louis Tillette came over, and he, he apologized for her uh, cussing and all that, and he said, "What do you do?" And I and I said, "I'm a student." I said, "I'm I'm a junior in high school." And he said, "You got a lot of spunk for a little feller." I was about 160 pounds, and uh, he said, "You like wrestling?" I said, "Yeah." I said, "I, I eat, sleep, you know, I like, I love it, you know." And he said, uh, "What's your plans when you get out of school?" And I said, "I'm not sure." I said, "I hope to play football." And he gave me his card. He said, uh, "If you get up to 200 pounds, you get out of high school. And I don't know what you want to do. Call me." And I kept his card in my wallet for two years. And I graduated school, high school, went to college for a semester. And I, I made the call, went down and got a tryout in Knoxville. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. <laughs> I chased a dream and caught it. 
you know, and you hear so many stories, you know, of, of people who, who want to break into the pro wrestling business. I mean, there's, there's, uh, you know, it's kind of the wheat from the chaff uh, sort of a situation where guys get called down to the arena, whether you were in uh, championship wrestling from Florida or you were in the Carolinas with uh, Gene and Gene Anderson. I mean, these in Bob Roop, for instance, these were guys that, uh, really uh, made it difficult for those, but I think that they uh, were so intent on protecting the business that a lot of these workouts, you saw a lot of guys that came in and paid, but a lot of them kind of ended up crawling out of the wreckage. So to be able to kind of make it past a, a tryout of sorts was almost a badge of honor too. And it led you to more things and, uh, and then people becoming a little more open to you in the locker room in those uh, kayfabe days. Yeah, absolutely. And and the guy that, that, that uh, Louis Tillette set me up with was a guy named Rick Connors out of Knoxville, Tennessee, one of the toughest men I had ever met. And and to think I was paying him to do some of the things that they were doing, I mean, it, it was very mafia-ish, so to speak, to get into the wrestling business. They didn't want you in. They tried to run you off. But, but on the flip side of that, it made you tough. I mean, there was times that they run us till our tongues were dragging, and then they put us in the ring and beat us up. We were too tired to fight. I mean, you know, and it was, it was head games too and all that. But but I appreciate it now because it, it made me a tough son of a gun. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I appreciate the fact, the way I broke in. I mean, today, you know, if you got to look, they, they can, they'll, they'll push you, you know. It used to be your wrestling skills and your knowledge was what got you in the business and now it's just the look and, and what music you come out to so mm-hmm. and that's just another one of the uh you know the uh collateral damage from from having the kayfabe era kind of get, you know basically get the uh, rabbit taken out of the hat and you can't put the rabbit back in the hat and and now with the, the way the wrestling model is today yeah it, it's definitely eons away from uh the way some people had to break in and, and some people had to make a living in general because with the options that the territories had uh, some places were feasts some places were uh were starvation right and and i learned early on um you know everybody can't be the quarterback somebody's going to have to block and so I learned the business. I learned the trade. I learned the psychology. I, I learned how to wrestle. Uh, and so I stayed busy from um, from 1981 when uh, Black Jack Mulligan and Ric Flair brought a piece of J- Jim Crockett Promotions over to Knoxville and opened up. Uh, I did several TVs and, and, and uh, came to be very good friends with Barry Wyndham, uh, of course, Mulligan's uh, son. And uh, so Jack came up and asked me, you know, would you, you ever thought about doing this full time? I said, gosh, that's all I've ever wanted. And he told me I could start in two weeks. Well, he actually asked me when I could start, and I said, I'd like to give a notice at my job. He said, that's very good business. I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect you to do that. So, you know, I, I learned, there you go. There's another, some locker room etiquette and some, some things about the business that's, that you do early on. And so I went 12 years, and I only missed uh, holidays or when we weren't running because I would finish up on Saturday night, maybe in Charlotte, and then we started in in Louisiana on Monday. So uh, I, I didn't have trouble getting getting any work because I could work. 
I got to ask you about that because you were you took part in those tapings, and uh, these guys uh, had kind of a short run uh, as own part owners uh, of of a piece of Knoxville. Uh, what what was the situation uh, like is to work in uh, when you you worked those tapings? Uh, you mentioned a little something about blackjack, but what could you see uh, working, and what could you see not working, uh, even at that stage in your career, uh, as you saw these guys, these these legends in the ring, trying to run a, a territory, which sometimes isn't always the easiest thing to do, especially when you get to matters of finances it's not and and especially you know in in east tennessee you know for years they you know everybody that was a star here was from here and they they appreciated their own you know the the, the ron and don rights and 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 of, of, of that era back in this you know late 60s and early 70s those were the people everybody recognized you know and then you know, of course, it was a territory days. You know, this is before cable, and and then when uh, Blackjack and and Flair came over, Flair, I don't think I think Flair ignored it more than he committed to on the, on the onset. Of course, he was he was world champion and having to travel, and so he was going to come in here, you know, and give the give us a shot in the arm as as we grew, and uh, Jim Crockett didn't who booked him. Um, didn't let him come as much, you know, and it just kind of, it just kind of fizzled out. Uh, you know, it was good while it lasted. Uh, I had some, like I, I, you know, I cut my teeth here, so um, it was good for me. Um, but we we traveled a lot, but we to make it work, we had to go into some Harrisonburg, Virginias, and 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 you know, cross over into Jim Crockett's already established territory to uh to benefit monetarily in that situation so and, and pro wrestling crowds of course when kayfabe was it was still strong it was starting to gradually fizzle out but you hear lots of stories and I, i've heard wrestlers on i've interviewed on the program talking about various places in the country that they've been and 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 during certain decades how, how just how rabid uh, wrestling fans can be uh, uh you know going beyond just being the passionate fan at, at ringside uh, there's been instances through the years where you hear about the old lady with the little hat pin or you hear somebody bringing a knife in i mean blackjack uh, had uh, an incident in, in boston uh, you know at the boston garden where he was cut did you mm-hmm. what did you get from watching engaging crowds uh you know as, as far as uh, playing to these uh different territories did you and did you see and what did you see early on uh, you know as far as to anything uh, that would shock you or anything that would uh you know kind of uh, make you take a step back and say well what did i get myself into or were you pretty much adept from the start uh, in, in in regards to dealing with a crowd well you know I always acknowledge the crowd, number one, because that, that's who we're buying the tickets. A lot of time, that's not the case, uh, especially today. Uh, but I always acknowledge the crowd, and, and, and most of my career was was as a babyface. So there really wasn't a fear uh, of the crowd. Of, of course, occasionally you get that one guy who's who's the heel. He's all for the heels, you know, and he wants to have a year and do something like that. Most of my encounters was away from the arena, you know, where guys would get, you know, liquored up or something and want to want to challenge your manhood or theirs. But but I always, I always watched the crowd because of the guy I was working for. I wanted to watch his back. You know, if something happened and he wasn't waiting or, or, or didn't see it coming or something, you know, I, my job is to protect him too. 
So so I paid a lot of attention to the crowd, you know, their reactions, what is doing. Now some some guys went over the over the line sometimes, you know, and and I always said, you know, cussing somebody's cheap heat, anybody can do that. You know, when you can get people that want to fight you and you just look at them funny, you know, you're doing your job. And that's a lost art, too, because wrestlers today don't take that time to acknowledge the fans. You know, most of the matches today are like a tennis match. You know, they're doing one thing, one thing, one thing, one thing, one thing. And and the, the, the fan can't absorb what you're doing. It's like it's like getting a guy in a corner and punching him ten times. He can only he can only sell one, and that's the last one. So the first nine didn't mean anything. And something I've noticed too, Tim, is uh, watching some of the modern stuff. If a younger guy, because they have everything so sequenced out, it's it's just like video game moves. When someone actually kind of like botches a spot to a degree, it, some of them are, are not quite as fast on their toes to throw an audible. While you get the vets who have been through that, that can kind of flip into a different hole to kind of protect a, a missed spot or something. But it seems like you know, for, I don't know if it's it's not for all, but for some of the younger guys, once they kind of mess up something in their in their move sequence, it, it kind of like puts it to some have it almost it's put put to a halt. They, they got to oh, do a lot more thinking on their feet. Yeah, I, I worked. I was an agent at in WWE in, in 2006, and I told some of those guys. I said, I said, hey man, you you couldn't have worked in the business, you know, 15 years ago. And they said, what are you talking about? And I said, I said, there's times when I stepped in the ring, and I locked up with a guy the first time I ever met him. I said, hey, how are you, sir? I'm, I remember locking up with a superstar one time. And I, I was nervous that we were in the Superdome, and this was early in my career, back in the early 80s, and uh, it was uh, Bill Eady, and I said. Uh, I said, how are you, sir? And he said, fine, how are you? Good. Yeah, you know, we're locking up and going back and forth, you know. And, and I guess he, he sensed, he could feel the nervousness in me. And he said, hey, kid, just calm down. And he started telling me this joke. And then he said, <laughs> he said, uh, he said, I'm going to shoot you off, drop down, reverse the hip, toss, get in the headlock again, and I'll tell you the rest of this joke. And I said, okay. So we did that. And I was calm after that. I mean, it was so, it was so peaceful after that, after you, you got over that. But I was just telling these guys, I said, you sit back here and you talk four hours over a four-minute match. I said, if you guys can't get it in four hours, I promise you those people won't get it in four minutes. Mm-hmm. Now, who, so, oh, uh, who, <laughs> Uh, who were some of the guys that looked out for you, though, that, that were able to give you some some advice and stuff like that? I mean, as you uh, you know had dealt with your own uh, uh, issues with being an agent and trying to get these young kids to kind of figure it out. But who were some people that, as you were kind of uh, developing and getting through and finding matches, both uh, for for very for various territories and working with TV studio matches, you must have been able to glean some knowledge, especially when you were working like for Mid Atlantic and, and and Georgia Championship with all those you know, big important. TV tapings and and just to see all of those guys, not only the TV stuff, but some of the house shows as well. Right, I, I learned early on to 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 watch matches. I always watch matches, and and I would watch, especially heels, what they did to get over and and why they got over and and what worked and what didn't work. And I would call a match I had with Sergeant Slaughter on TV. He was the U.S. heavyweight champion, and and and. Um, in the Charlotte territory, and so I had a, I had a match with him, and, and they said, you know, uh, you know, he'll end up catching in the in the Cobra Clutch, and so you know, we talked. He said, he said, I oh, would just work it out. He said, you can work. He said, and uh, he said, we'll just do it in the rain. So that's all I knew, you know. Well, we got in there, and, and you know, and he was giving me everything. I mean, everything he did, I countered everything. Da 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 da. 
And then, you know, he was, you know, flipping and flopping like a fish out of water for me, you know, and I'm here I am just, you know, an upstart, undercard match, you know, and and uh, so finally, you know, out of the blue, he just catches me a clothesline, pulls my tights and beats me, doesn't even use his finish, storms over to the Bob Cottle at the um, announcer's table and says, what's going on here? I was supposed to have an easy match today and you stick this kid in here who's a main event anywhere in the country. I almost got beat, you know, just... So I realized then, and I talked to him last, and, man, I really appreciate that, you know, what you did. And he said, hey, if I go out there and just beat you up, I beat nobody. He said, in order for me to mean something, I have to make you something. Then I beat somebody. And I learned something from that, you know, which was what he just said. You know, you can, if you're going to go out there and beat, and, and uh, especially as a heel, you know, if you're going to win anyway, you know, you beat somebody, not just, just, and I know there's squash matches, you know, it used to be all the time, but, but I learned something from that and that, that stuck with me for a, for a long time, uh, you know, just how he did that, you know, and, and then I would, I went to the shows and then people said, man, if you'd have had five more seconds, you'd have beat him, you know, so it elevated me up another notch. Mm-hmm. Most definitely, most definitely. Uh, that's just a good way to give you a rub and, and kind of not just put you down and just leave you in and to be a, a, just one of the basic uh, slabs of meat that they get to do all their moves with. You, they gave you a little mm-hmm. something. They put some depth in your character, and, and that can only be upside. And I, you talked about, the, you know, with, with the TV tapings. Uh, I mean, you've worked many of them with uh, Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling throughout the 80s. And one I want to talk about, I've been watching, I've been seeing a lot of it on um, YouTube lately. I've been watching a lot of the Georgia championship stuff and kind of watching you develop. And uh, one of the things I want to ask before we talk about some of your Georgia memories of the TV studio in Atlanta was uh, the guy kind of uh, the behind the scenes man, a guy that not exactly uh, everybody loves and thinks is Mr. Warm and fuzzy through the years is a little bit on the blunt side. But through the years, I've seen him. You've associated with this gentleman on on television, on wrestling in the NWA and also in Georgia championship wrestling. I want to talk about the man Ole Anderson, and uh, talk about how you kind of became involved with Ole and ended up in these Georgia Championship Wrestling uh, tapings, and and what was he like uh, during a a taping day or uh, an interview day? Because I mean, a, a lot of he gets he gets a bad rap from some and others to say he was he had a tough love way around him. What can you say about Ole Anderson? Because you were very much in the mix in Georgia Championship Wrestling, and then even later on in the uh, NWA when they uh, switched off to to the main uh, Saturday Night Show. Right, I I loved Ole. I mean, he was just he he had a different sense of humor. A lot of guys didn't get to you know. I traveled with him some, you know, and you get you get to learn people when you're in the car with them for three or four hundred miles than just seeing them, you know, at work. And so, uh, you know. Ole was was kind of running things in Georgia, and then Jake Roberts came over and took the book. And so I was in I was in um, in Charlotte working, and uh, they had pushed for me to to work a program with Ivan Koloff, but Angelo Mosca was in there, and and uh, his kid had just broken the business, so he pushed for his kid, and you know of course that they went that route instead with me. So uh, you know. Uh, I think Jake had, had asked Jimmy Crockett, you know, he said, "Won't you do something with this kid? You know, do you know some little angle?" I said, "He, he I think he's ready." And and of course they didn't. So 
Jake went to to uh, TBS Georgia Championship Wrestling, and he called me. He said, "Hey, I got a spot for you. You want to come here?" And I said, "Yeah, I do." So I left Crockett and went to Georgia. And uh, my first TV, I beat Hawk on TV, one, two, three, right in the middle. That has to be one of your and, big, the biggest uh, victories uh, on Georgia Championship Wrestling in regards to the history of the TBS show because it was kind of a, an out-of-nowhere thing when when you got these guys, these road warriors, especially at the time, they, they looked like they came from the Mel Gibson movies. They, they looked like something that was just uh, out of nowhere. It was a different type of gimmick, and they looked nearly invincible, but it was uh, a guy like, like yourself, a scrappy contender, that was able to pull off the upset, and and, and that really had some good ripple. Uh, it, that just had a good ripple effect uh, for you as well on on Georgia Championship. Absolutely, you you know, and I tell I tell those guys later on in their career, I said, man, I've been in easier fights, you know, because they they were stiff and and but but their stuff was believable, and that's how that's how come they got over, you know. And uh, I'll tell you an interesting story real quick when when uh, Jake came to me and he says he says you're going to beat Hulk on TV. I said, does he know that? <laughs> so, anyway, we went back and and animals animal did, was totally against it. He said he's too small. He's a and Hawk said, look, he's been in the business not longer than we have. You know, we don't know anything. We're just you know. So I said, I said, guys, you you you'll get a ton of heat off of this. Trust me. And uh, and Hawk said, yeah, well, well, animal says, look, as soon as that bell rings, I'm hitting the ring, and if you're still in it, I'm taking your effing head off. And I said, don't worry, I'll be out of the way, which I was. And uh, so anyway, I didn't have a partner at that time. So I went around the loop. I had Tony Atlas as a, as a partner, uh, Boogie Woogie Man, Jimmy Valiant. I had uh, Lonnie Garvin. I had King Kong Bundy. I had uh, Superstar. I had um, two or three others, you know, just never really had a partner, but everybody jumped in, and we went all the way around and we, and had tag matches all the way around up in Ohio and everything. You know, that's when they first started going up there and everything. I mean, everything was sold, slapped out every, everywhere. And we went to Cleveland, and uh, it was me and Bundy, and they, they handcuffed Bundy and was, was killing me in the ring. I mean, just killing me. And they, they on their way back, about six or eight bikers jumped the fence and was going to whip them, and they, those guys, <laughs> warriors, laid them out like cordwood. It was, it was amazing. And then we get back, and Hawk says, "Hey, Warner, is that that heat you was talking about?" And I said, "That's it." <laughs> and he said, "Man, I love it." <laughs> so, oh yeah, and yeah, uh, that was that was that was a, a very pivotal point in my career. But but getting back to Ole, I know you want to get all that. This was Ole's Ole's deal was the was the Warriors. So, uh, and then uh, I ended up uh, Ole's partner as when the horseman kicked him out. He didn't have one. I said, you know, I don't have a partner. I just went out there real humble one Saturday morning and said, hey, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm don't have the experience you have, but if you need any help, I'd be happy to help you. And then so that's how that happened. So we went around with the horseman on that. So which just elevated me even more at that point. So. This is Wrestling Memories Then and Now. I'm Glenn Broggett, along with my guests, White Lightning, Tim Horner, and we are talking classic Georgia championship wrestling. We've been talking about Ole Anderson, the the Road Warriors. And it was also in those uh, early days in, in, uh, in uh, Atlanta during the TV tapings that you came across a man who you would 
tagged with off and on for the next few years and a guy I, I thought simply had the, had the goods, had all of it, all, everything I thought that, that was meant to be a champion. But for some reason, he just didn't quite make it all the way, but he was just such a great wrestler. And, and when you two got together, man, whether whatever phase of your career you guys worked together as a tag team, I always thought that you guys, uh, you guys should have even gotten a bigger push. I, I want to talk about the man who became your partner in the Lightning Express, uh, Brad Armstrong. And, uh, yeah, I remember those days in Atlanta, how you guys kind of came together. Didn't you end up wrestling kind of against each other in uh, a tournament uh, for for the chance to wrestle Ric Flair? There was an angle. I, I might be off in remembering it, but I think that was how I really yeah. kind of got to figure out you and you and Brad and the relationship that kind of developed and friendship through the years. Yeah, that was... Uh... You know, Brad tagged with his dad early on, and I'd met Brad earlier on, and we, we hit it off from the get-go. But, you know, he was just in a, in a better position with with his dad being in, in the booker and everything. I, I got more opportunities. I'm glad for him. You know, I, I wasn't the second generation, so I was just like a new kid coming in. But but we did we hit it off, and we, we traveled a lot together. And um, that tournament was, it was a tournament to see who would wrestle uh, Ric Flair. And it come up to Brad won his match, I won mine, and then we ended up together. And Hawk actually interfered, um, went to went to clothesline me. I ducked, and he clotheslined Brad, and so I got disqualified. And so Brad moved on up, and then Brad wrestled Jack Briscoe, and Jack Briscoe won, and Jack eventually wrestled Flair for the title. So that's how that uh, that developed. And then Ole put us together, you know, as as a tag team, and. Um, we wrestled uh, Ted Oates and Rip Rogers as the Hollywood Blondes at that time. So uh, we had a little run with them. We were the Georgia, Georgia World, I don't know what they call it then, Georgia Championship Tag Team Champions. And so we we ran with those for a while. And then, um, you know, Vince came in and, and we stayed with Ole. We made the decision. Uh, Brad didn't want to go. And, I, and, you know, at that point, you know, Ole had given me a, a big break, and I, I felt loyalty to him to stay, so I did. But we both ended up going to uh, Mid-South with uh, Bill Watts. Yeah, and and, 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 and that's what I want to, you know, when you moved in to work with, with Watts, what were the differences, uh, if a lot, and maybe even some of the similarities between uh, the way Bill uh, ran his uh, locker room and, uh, say, and Ole Anderson? Uh, you know, there had to be some uh, similarities, of course, but what, what, what were some of the differences that kind of separated the two from one another? Well, yeah, there was a lot of similarities. You know, they, they were both old school, and they were sticking to their guns. Uh, it, it was it was around wrestling, you know. It wasn't a lot of theatrics and stuff, you know. They 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 both were were sticking to their guns in in the, in the old school, and uh, you know they they controlled uh, the happenings and and what you did. I, I remember, um, you know, dress code was a big deal. I remember uh, them talking about Bill Watts. Uh, firing Bob Orton Jr. because he was the world champion and he got beat up in a bar one night, uh, and he took the, the title off of him. He said, "You can't if you can't win these fights in bars, don't go in them because you're my world champion." And I remember Tommy Rich flying in for a shot in Houston and got off the plane and cut off some flip flops, and Bill fined him two hundred dollars for not having a sport coat and a suit. You know, <laughs> just little things like that. But it, it taught you to respect the business. And Ole was the same way, you know. You're going to respect this business, you know. And 
and and and you know do your best to make it as real as you can. And uh, their philosophies were 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 kind of a lot, you know. Uh, and Ole kind of aligned himself too, you know, when they were booking territories with with guys that were, that were double tough and guys you had a chance to work in the ring with. Uh, I want to talk uh, about working with a guy who who is still very much alive in this world today. Uh, I'm talking about Bob Roop and uh, mm-hmm. a guy from over, from over in England that I, I think was kind of underrated here in the United States as far as mass audience appeal, uh, Les Thornton. You had a chance to kind of work uh, during your Georgia time with, with, with both Bob oh, and yeah. Les. I mean, you talk about guys that were so dedicated and could, uh, well, you know, if things ever got out of whack, could probably put things back in place because they have their knowledge and their toughness and their amateur backgrounds. Yeah, I remember. I remember in Georgia, there was this guy at the gym, and he made he made fun. He was a bodybuilder. He made fun of the boys all the time, you know. Right, 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 right. So they they offered him. They asked him to come down, and he could get a tryout in the Omni. So uh, he gets in the ring, and you know you got uh, they have Rocky King, I think, and um, uh, the Italian Stallion, who was a AAU champion. Uh, wrestler, and they had, uh, gosh, somebody else, and then, and then um, um, Bob Roop was standing there and had his glasses on his nose, looking at the paper, and so the guy says, "I'll just, I'll take the fat guy," you know, and we all just like, "Gosh, here it comes," you know, and Bob, oh my gosh, this guy was squealing like a pig, you know. And uh, Bob just had him tied up in knots and could have just annihilated him, but but he embarrassed him. And he and after that, he you know he respected what we did. But I thought, man, out of all of them, that was probably the last one I'd have picked. <laughs> <laughs> well, most definitely. Uh, and you got like like yeah. I said, Bob and, and and a Les Thornton type. I mean, these guys uh, they can handle themselves. Right. I wrestled Les and and uh, uh, many times. And I did the Marcus of Queensbury. I've been hours with him. I wrestled the, uh, when the, when for the World Junior Heavyweight title with him. Uh, golly, I know we did at least eight or nine of those hour matches. Uh, there were sixty-minute matches, five minutes, and then you get a break in between, kind of sort of. But but it, it was different. It was a different match. You know, anytime you broke code, you had to get up and start again. It was just kind of a, a different twist on the match, but when I when I broke, you know, he'd get a cheap shot in, and it was it was, it was easy heat for him, but the, but the fans loved it. I mean, they it was it was crazy. <laughs> you know, uh, we we talked about Vince McMahon a little bit, and with with uh, wrestling, his expansion, buying the uh, out from under, buying from his father, the World Wrestling Federation, and turning it into this. Uh, cross-country, territory-busting company uh, that was out to be this national entity. But at the same time, it wasn't too much longer after that that Jim Crockett sort of uh, started to follow that model and uh, wanted to be big, just like uh, you know Vince and, and tour all over the country and all over the area. What can you remember when, when things kind of started to change up a little bit when when Jim Crockett came down to Atlanta, uh, basically kind of taking over from Ole, who had his championship wrestling from Georgia show in response to uh, the WWF taking over uh, WCW or the uh, World Championship Wrestling show on that infamous Black Saturday. I mean, that was the game changer, I think, uh, when, when 
when they bought into that market uh, and they bought those shares, uh, that 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 really changed things up uh, for pro wrestling because it not only uh, uh, gave you know a couple of companies knocked a few people off uh, their markets in other parts of the country, but it also made guys like Jim Crockett fully aware of who he's battling and how much farther he could take it as far as being an, a McMahon of sorts. Well, right, you know when when Vince started um, putting guys on contracts. Uh, there's very few guys on contracts, you know, early on in the early '80s, and, and that, you know, I, Hogan may have been on one, and 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 few guys probably. But when he started putting the top guys from all the territories on contracts, you know, he went to Louisiana and he got Junkyard Dog, and he got, you know, and he he just was just swallowing up all the top talent everywhere, you know. And in order for for Crockett to compete, he had to start putting these guys on contract because. Either he gets them on contract or Vince is going to buy them out, you know, and put them on contract. So, you know, that was a game changer, uh, you know. And it was good for the guys, you know, because now everybody was was, was getting some guaranteed money, and uh, and it was a game changer. Uh, unfortunately for the Crockett's, you know, they didn't have the pockets as deep as Vince, <laughs> so... You know, it eventually caught up with them, but uh, they tried to play the game. Uh, I think but, too. I think too. With them, was it became a lot of about access. You know, when they were going and they were buying. Uh, you know, getting into a building down in Dallas where they should have been sticking around the Carolinas. They were doing a lot of big things with uh, Lear jets and you know limos and buying cars. It became very excessive. Uh, you know, from the financial end. Uh, and, and trying to catch up with the WWF, and that they kind of just burned themselves out. And another example of a guy th- that uh, you know tried to do the national thing and ended up selling uh, to uh, Crockett, who ended up in turn selling the Turner, was Bill Watts. I mean, you were around in the area when Watts decided that he was going to go national, which was a very bold move that for, with his UWF product, which itself uh, was. Pre- um, itself was previously the company, but then of course became the UWF. What was it like mm-hmm. to, to know to watch, you know, to go and decide that he was going to go national, even in the midst of some of his talent being taken out from under him by by McMahon? I mean, a gutsy move considering not only the wrestling climate, but even some of the financial climate in towns and states around his territory. Yeah, well, I think he just looked out and he saw what was happening. You know, you know, you either, you know, sometimes you you got to. Don't be afraid to go out on the limb because that's where the fruit is. But sometimes that branch gets heavy and breaks off. So as you said, you know, it was a gutsy move uh, to do that. But I, I think he looked at it as I don't have a choice. I'm just going to sit here and die or I'm going to have to get in the game. And, uh, you know, when we went out there, uh, Dusty put us back together as the Lightning Express, and he took us to UWF, and we went out there. And of course, we we went out our first TV and, and beat Sting and Steiner for the, for the belts and immediately established us out there. And so we were working all the towns, doing. we were the main events and doing this and doing that and everything. And then they decided, let's have a joint show. Well, what happened was, and I, 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 I bucked this for a long time because I didn't think it was right. They came in, you know, and then it was the Horsemen and, uh, and Flair and this, you know, and then all of a sudden we're the world champions out here in our own territory and we're third and fourth match. So it made us look second rate 
you know, rather than coming in and letting us work with the horsemen, you know, which would have helped us out there in our ter- territory. Well, it sort of made you feel uh, a little bit devalued because you guys were the stars. Again, you had the tag belts on you, and it was like you bought this company and it, and, and just kind of put you guys in as afterthoughts for the NWA guys when they could have probably done some stuff, interpromotional things that could have uh, lit up a, a few feuds and kind of put a little more significance to some of this, uh, to this merger, and, instead of just basically, uh, aside from maybe a handful of guys uh, watching the rest of the UWA, of locker room either leave or get buried right absolutely you know and when we went out there they said you know that crockett had the, the lear jet and he had a g1 uh which 17 guys could get on and so they told us you know you're gonna be you're gonna go out there and you're gonna be home every night we're flying this g1 and then we was for about two weeks and then the guys in charlotte got mad because they couldn't get home every night so they took the plane back to charlotte you know we were gone for you know sometimes 15 16 days in a row you know, just making the loops. And so we weren't getting home, so we weren't getting what we were told. And then eventually they just, you know, they just like killed it off and, you know, just boom, it was gone. <laughs> you know, I couldn't believe it because we all worked hard and we had some great talent. You know, Dr. S. Steve Williams and Barry Windham and, and myself and Ron Simmons and Tiger Conway Jr. and Pez Watley. I mean, we were all guys that could work. We knew what to do. Just let us do it. Yeah, and and I, and I don't think they it used the Freebirds very effectively. I don't think the Freebirds were used effectively either right away when uh, when the whole UWF thing was merged because they made a big splash on NWA TV and then they had them drop out in the Omni to the Horsemen. Right. Yeah, you know, and they were a draw. They were a huge draw. Uh, I remember when when they first came in back in the eighties. You know, first they were actually the first group to come into music. You know, come to the ring with music, you know, the free bird music, you know, and it was just crazy. Omni was crazy then, so, yeah. But looking back, you know, you, you go, why did they, you know, why did they do that? You know, they could have had this and they could have done that and, you know, but, uh, you know, it's all been a learning curve, so... <laughs> Uh, absolutely it, it, it's nothing that was set in stone you don't have the benefit of hindsight i mean it was just uh in the moment you're these guys are also grown men learning life uh you know on the road and trying to figure out uh what works and, and sometimes not doing the right thing that's just uh the whole growing up thing uh we have a little bit of time left i mean i think we gotta have maybe make this a two-parter one of these days here tim because the time has sure. been flying by so fast and and i hope that i'm not asking too many questions that are uh too too draining on you here sir Oh, no, not at all. I just want to talk a little bit about before uh, we kind of get close to wrapping up today. Uh, now, everybody, you know, it seemed like, the, you know, Vince was plucking stars left and right that everybody seemed to have at least had a moment or a few months in the WWF. And you were no stranger to that. Uh, you signed up with the World Wrestling Federation. Uh, what kind of uh, finally that led you to, to signing? Who, who kind of got you up there? And, and, and let's just talk about your experience uh, working for uh, the Titan Company uh, back in the day after all of these years of cutting your teeth, learning under various promoters, various wrestlers to actually go up to uh, New York, as they say, and sign the deal and start working their loops. Well, what happened was Ted DiBiase and I have been friends for 30 years, uh, always close. Um, I try to We try to talk maybe once or twice every every couple months just just to keep in touch and uh, and so he was a connection up there for, for me 
but Bill Eady, when Smash, when Demolition was there, uh, they wanted a young babyface team to work with, and so they called and wanted they wanted Brad and I to go, and Brad didn't want to go, and so he he, I said, well, you know, I, I've got to go somewhere, you know, I can't just, <laughs> you know, I'd be great if we'd win as as a team, but. Brad didn't want to go, so I went anyway. But no position, no spot, nothing promised. You know, Ted just said, "Come up here." He said, "They'll love you." And so uh, uh, we didn't go, but because we didn't go, the Rockers went, and the rest is history on that story. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I just went up there and um, you know just worked, did what they asked, and and uh, you know. Um, uh, Chief, um, golly, um, Strongbow, senior moment. Strongbow was an agent up there. Chief and I had a good relationship, and he said, he said, I'm not sure what if they're going to do anything with him, you know. And so he he was in charge of, of, of putting the matches together a little bit, you know, underneath, or, or he had the talent there. Of course, they were still bringing guys in for TV, had TV guys and stuff like that, but but. She said, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to kill you. He said, you know, so what he did with me was the guys would come in and, to try out for WWF, uh, the dark matches. And so I would always go out and do the dark matches. He said, you can make them look better than they can make themselves, and you can get the best out of them. So I did that a lot. I, I didn't get a lot of TV time. If I did, it was cable matches, and it was always with with uh, one of the top guys. So it, it was a match, you know. Uh, I remember one of the biggest compliments uh, Randy Savage ever gave me was, he said, you know, they got me and you on a cable match in Boston Gardens, and he said, uh, they want me to catch your elbow, so you just set it up. And so I set the whole match up. And uh, he said, man, I wish it was all like this. You know, that was a compliment to me because he knew I knew what I needed to do, and I knew my job was to get him over, and and that's what we did, and uh, and that was that was my spot. You know, you, you got to know your spot. You know, you're either the guy that gets beat all the time, or you're the star maker, or you're the star. And I I realized early on, as I said earlier, you know, everybody can't be the quarterback. Somebody's got to block. So I was in that star maker role uh, position for a lot of my career. What was the travel like on you? On you, uh, I mean, some people uh, are, are born road warriors, but others it, it just could be a drag and can drain somebody down to nothing. Yeah, well, back back in '89 when I was up there, I mean, we flew every day. Um, we I, we were gone 12 days. We got three days off. Then you went back for five. Then you come back for three. Then you were gone for 12 again, and this was continuous. And a lot of times, I remember once uh, the last day was in Calgary. You know, so the next day was a day off, but you spent that whole day getting home. And then the next day you washed your clothes, and the next day you packed to go out again. And so, you know, I found myself, when I come home, I disrupted what my wife's <laughs> play. You know, she's got her little, she had her little uh, plan, she routine that she was in, you know, and I come home and disrupted that, you know. But, but it was tough, you know, uh, but, you know, I don't regret it. I'm, I mean, I've been in... 28 different countries and wrestled in every state in the United States, every major arena, some of the old ones, you know, the Cow Palace and and the gardens and the old Boston gardens and, and you know, those are just 
memories and, and stuff that I share a lot with with some other guys. You know, kids kids now they don't 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 remember the old Boston Gardens, but but uh, you know, it was a good experience for me at that point. Oh, absolutely. And I think one of the times when we have you back on, we could have you list uh, some of your favorite arenas or some of your favorite matches, uh, just because you've had so much experience, traveled so many different places in your career. You've worked the small spots, the big spots internationally. Internationally, I'd love to hear some of your stories on Japan. But uh, this time around, was just kind of getting able to talk to you, kind of an update uh, for some of our fans who remember watching you on television to uh, you know get a, get an update on the man who is now uh, in the world of politics right now. And uh, yes, the people put Horner in their corner. He's, the, he's a commissioner-elect for Hamblin County. And man, I don't know, maybe once the responsibilities and stuff uh, of taking care of your county are done, or if you ever have some spare time, uh, I'd love to have you to come back on the program because, my friend, I think we uh, had a nice conversation here, and I, and I think we can go a little bit further and extend it out uh, from, from this point. Absolutely, Glenn. I, I've enjoyed it. And like I said, I've not done a whole lot of these since since Brad passed. Uh, you know, I just, I just had no, it just took a lot out of me. Um, when, when Brad passed, we were, we were like brothers. I mean, I spent time at his house and broke bread with his family and he said he's been to mine many a times and, and, uh, you know, I just miss him terribly. There's probably not a day goes by that I don't think about him in some, uh, aspect because somebody will always ask and they'll or say something about wrestling and, uh, you know, I bet you miss Brad. Yeah, I do. You know, the, but, um, yeah, and, but I'm, I'm starting to get out and, you know, I did, I did a couple fanboys. I've got one coming up in Georgia, the 22nd, uh, I get to see a lot of guys down there. So looking forward to that. Yeah, that must be great just to kind of get back out and, and see the fraternity of guys, uh, you know, at some of these uh, arena sh- of these uh, indie shows or some of these autograph conventions. Because you know, Matt, it's, tomorrow isn't guaranteed us, man. And it, what we do today is, you know, the thing that's most important. And I think uh, getting out there and getting a chance to kind of talk with your friends and stuff you haven't seen in years through these little conventions and and other things is, is another great part of uh, the pro wrestling uh, tree or the pro wrestling family. Yeah, it's actually been a little therapeutic for me uh, uh, at, at the Fanboy. Of course, they had all four of the Horsemen and J.J. there, and, you know, the Rock and Roll and Magnum and Teddy Long and the Nasty Boys and Ricky Steamboat. You know, all those guys were, 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 were my guys, my family on the road back then. And, it, you know, and it's like Teddy says. He said, you know, you, it's funny. We can not talk for a while and, and sit down for 10 minutes, and it's like we were right back where we were, you know? It's nice to have so, friends like that. It really is, isn't it? I mean, when you can have, you had so oh. many memories with, and it's like you just push the stop button or the pause button the last time you saw them, and then you see them again, and it, it all just comes floating back. Now, that's just that's just good friendship and brotherhood. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I, I have uh, a couple seconds left here, uh, Mr. Horner. Is there anything you would like to get, get out for the fans that we didn't touch on? Uh, anything uh, the fans need to know about you here before we, uh, we, we part today on Wrestling Memories Then and Now? Well, um, yeah, I, I do. <laughs> I'm, I'm very. I, I love music. I, I grew up with music, and uh, I have been promoting some a little bit. I, I'm, I have White Lightning Entertainment, and uh, I promote a group called American Pride. They do a tribute to the Statler Brothers. Oh, cool! And you can go on AmericanCountry.com, AmericanPrideCountry.com, and catch their videos. They're amazing, and I'm, I'm kind of the spare tire. 
on occasions one of them can't go and I get to fill in. So uh, that that to me is, is, is fun to go out because, you know, once you're an entertainer, you're an entertainer regardless of what you're doing. And so that's that's an outlet for me now, and, and it's a lot safer than taking bumps unless you fall off the stage. So uh, really enjoying that right now. But um, as we said earlier, you know, September 1st, i got to get to work here with the county commission. So I'm looking forward to that and uh, hope to see some of the fans out at some of these uh, conventions and, and, and uh, fanboys. I'm hopefully going to get booked on some more. Uh, I do have the one in November coming up uh, in um, the big one in um, Winston-Salem, I guess, is uh, WrestleCade. So I'm on that one, too. So excited about that. Oh, it sounds... Appreciate you having me on, Glenn, and it's, it's been a pleasure. Oh, yeah, it sounds like you're very excited for the the events to come. Well, it's time to go here on Wrestling Memories. I want to thank White Lightning and Tim Horner for being a part of the program next week, and we're going to get him back on in the not-too-distant future. For Wrestling Memories Then and Now, I'm Glenn Broggett. So long from ringside.